This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of a child, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free, confidential support is available 24-7 through Rain's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. It's Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. Early evening in the French town of Le Gros du Rop. Shadows start to stretch across the streets of the Mediterranean coastal resort. Once upon a time, it was a fishing port, but the tourists that flock here in numbers that rival the local flamingos are the lifeblood of the locals now. This is a quieter time of year, though. The market stalls by the port will stay closed until after Christmas, and many of the boats and yachts that bob in the bay during summer months have migrated to busier locations. The September sun melts across the empty horizon as a police car crawls along a sleepy street. The officer in the passenger seat squints out at the door numbers as they cruise past a series of apartments. Suddenly, he spots the one they want, tapping a hand against the dash to signal the driver. The passenger scoops up his phone, taking one last glance at the face looking back at him from the screen. 59-year-old Francois Varov, with his thin graying hair swept across his forehead and brown eyes peering over his glasses. He looks more like an accountant than a former police officer. Nevertheless, he's the man they're here to find. Varov's wife has reported him missing. Neither she nor their two children have seen him for four days now. It's not like her husband, and she's understandably worried. Police records show Varov has a rented apartment here in town. Should be nothing more than a quick well-being check, a suggestion that he call his wife, and then they can clock out for the day. When their knock goes unanswered, the officer goes around back to try his luck there. The one in front knocks twice more, but the result is the same. He's about to radio his partner when the door clicks open. It's not Varov, though. The other officer, having gained entry from the rear, gestures for his partner to join him inside. There's a sickly sweet scent as they walk into the living room. The source of it is immediately apparent. A man lies slumped in an armchair. It's clear even from the doorway that he's dead and has been for a while. Nevertheless, the first officer walks slowly towards him, peering at the body as he draws closer. The man's eyes are closed, mouth hanging open, and there's a grayish hue to his face, but there's no mistaking his identity. Madame Varov has just become a widow. The officer can't see any physical injuries, but his eyes linger on an empty bottle of pills by the side of the chair. Beside it lies a single sheet of paper. It's difficult to read the scrawl in the gloom, so he asks his partner to switch on the light. He starts to read, and as he does, he feels his stomach start to tighten as the contents of the letter sink in. It's a suicide note, signed by Francois Varot. This isn't the first dead body the officers have seen, and ordinarily, a sad situation such as this feels somber. Why Varov chose to end his life, however, is a revelation that makes the hairs on the back of the officer's neck stand up. The letter isn't just a suicide note. It's a confession. And the answer to a question that has plagued French police for four decades. Who is Le Grelet, also known as the pockmarked killer? But is Varov's letter genuine? 
Or is this just a fantastical fiction? A man driven by his own demons to the point where he chose to end his life. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Francois Varov, of the words he wrote before he died, about a series of unsolved murders and rapes stretching over decades. How a predator eluded police to prey on Parisian women of all ages, then stopped as suddenly as he'd begun. And why it took 35 years and nine different judges to finally make the breakthrough that would unmask one of France's most prolific serial killers. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Francois Verreau was born in 1962 in Gravelines, northern France, just 15 miles from the beaches at Dunkirk where Allied soldiers were evacuated in their thousands. It's a commune, the smallest type of administrative division in France. With less than 10,000 inhabitants at the time, it's a far cry from the hustle and bustle of city life that Verov will experience later in life. Not much is known of Verov's childhood or family, but as an adult, he leaves this small town life behind, heading to Paris in the early 80s. Paris has a reputation as a romantic city, but any city that size has its fair share of crime to contend with as well, and Verov opts to join the city's police force. When it comes to the more extreme end of the criminal spectrum he will be expected to deal with, France doesn't have the same reputation for or fascination with serial killers as countries like the United States. That doesn't mean it hasn't had its fair share, though. There have been 59 French serial killers in total, 80% of which have been in the last 100 years. Most killers who rise to that level of infamy acquire a nickname along the way. They're often coined by the press, 
used to sensationalize the case, to play on people's morbid fascination. One such killer starts to ply their trade around the same time Francois Varov walks the beat on the streets of Paris. Witnesses will remember seeing a man with a pockmarked face who will become christened Le Grelet, or the pockmarked killer. Any murder is shocking, but the more innocent and helpless the victim, the more senseless it seems. And what could be more senseless than the murder of a child? It's May 5th, 1986, and Monday morning traffic zips through narrow streets as Paris comes to life. 11-year-old Cécile Bloch lives on Rue Petite in the 19th arrondissement with her father Jean-Pierre, mother Suzanne, and older half-brother Luke. She's already a gifted musician, proficient on the piano and violin with aspirations for a career in music. It starts out like any other day. Breakfast as a family, Jean-Pierre and Suzanne getting ready for work. Luke heading out to university, Cecile stuffing textbooks into her bag, ready for the 10-minute walk to school. But today will not be like any other day. It is one that will haunt the Block family for the rest of their lives. As usual, Cecile is the last to leave the apartment, around 8.45. Her mother calls home around noon. Cecile always comes home for lunch, but today, no one picks up. Suzanne calls the school, but is told her daughter hasn't shown up. Suzanne and Jean-Pierre rush home, worried that Cecile is homesick, but find the apartment empty. Panic sets in. The few neighbors that are still at home say they haven't seen Cecile, but are happy to help look for her. Minutes turn to hours, local streets are scoured, and each floor of the building is searched, but no sign of Cecile. Jean-Pierre is considering calling the police when the caretaker appears in the lobby. The two men stare at one another for a few seconds before the caretaker drops a bombshell that will blow the Bloch's family's world apart. He has found Cecile. Her body is in the basement. Jean-Pierre tears downstairs to see his little girl, hoping this is all a cruel mistake. His hopes are dashed when he sees her. Who would do such a thing? What kind of person could hurt a child this way? While waiting for the police to arrive, the Block family grieve together, going over the details of the morning, asking themselves how this happened in their own building, and was there any way it could have been prevented? As they each share recollections of the day, one stunning similarity surfaces. Each of them has seen a stranger in the elevator on their way out a face they did not recognize. Had they unknowingly walked past Cecile's killer as he lay in wait? The thought is enough to sicken them, but surely, thanks to statements from several neighbors who also saw the same man, it's only a matter of time before he's caught. Little do they know, Cecile is just the first in a long line of victims who he will prey upon. Police arrive and swarm over the building like ants, looking for clues to the identity of Cecile's killer. The details of Cecile's murder are heartbreaking for her parents to hear. She is found hidden beneath an old piece of carpet, one hand sticking out. Her clothes are missing, and she has been sexually assaulted, strangled, and stabbed. Statements taken from neighbors match those of the family. The man they saw is around six feet tall, 
with straight brown hair, a lock on the forehead, rather athletic, and dressed in jeans, a jacket, and tennis shoes. Police quickly establish he isn't a resident, and from the timing of when he was spotted, estimate he spent up to an hour traveling up and down in the elevator. They speculate that he overpowered Cecile when she entered the elevator alone and forced her down into the basement where he carried out his attack. Cecile's half-brother Luke is haunted by his encounter with the man. The stranger even spoke to him, saying he hoped Luke had a good day. Luke, like the others, places the man's age between 25 and 30, with a distinctive pockmarked skin, as if he suffered from severe acne. Whoever killed Cecile, they haven't tried very hard to cover their tracks. Samples of the killer's blood, sperm, and hair are found at the scene. Nowadays, this kind of find is a perfect springboard for investigators, but back in the mid-80s, DNA-based techniques were still in their infancy. All the same, it feels like a positive start. Luke, thanks to his studies in biology, has learned of fledgling work done by police forces in England and Belgium, using DNA profiling to identify suspects. The British police force in particular are the first to claim a successful conviction in a case that would change the world of forensic and policing in a major way. And the Block family pray that their own police force can replicate the success to get justice for Cecile. In 1986, Dawn Ashworth, a young 15-year-old girl from Leicester in England, goes missing one evening after visiting a friend. She's found two days later, beaten, assaulted, and strangled. The case bears a striking similarity to another from three years before, that of Linda Mann, also 15, whose killer had never been found. Leicestershire Police Force undertake an enormous sweep of local men, asking over 5,500 to voluntarily provide blood and saliva samples. Thanks to groundbreaking work by Alec Jeffries, a geneticist at the University of Leicester, pioneering new techniques are available to investigators. Jeffries is able, for the first time, to extract DNA profiles from such samples, proving in this case that not only were both girls killed by the same person, but that it was not the suspect police had in custody, 17-year-old Richard Buckland. Jeffries later says that without this DNA profiling, the weight of evidence against Buckland was almost certainly enough that he would have been wrongly convicted. A year later, it's revealed that a local man, Colin Pitchfork, had a friend submit a sample on his behalf. Jeffries' groundbreaking methods are able to match Pitchfork's sample to those taken from the bodies of both victims, and DNA profiling has its first conviction. It seems then, fortuitous for the Block family, that such advances are made around the time Cecile is killed. Surely with these new methods at the investigator's disposal, justice for Cecile won't be far away. The investigation into Cecile's murder is led by Chief Inspector Bernard Pasqualini of the Paris Police. Rather than follow up on Luke's DNA suggestion, his team turns to previous unsolved cases and are stunned to find this probably isn't the first time Le Grelet has attacked someone. On 7th of April, 1986, one month before Cecile was lured to her death in the basement, an eight-year-old girl was attacked in the 13th arrondissement. Unlike Cecile, this girl survived her ordeal. Her description of her attacker, plus his blood type, 
make it highly likely that the two attacks were carried out by the same person. Luke Block renews his pleas to learn from the Pitchfork case and narrow this down to a specific DNA profile, but his requests fall on deaf ears. The magistrate overseeing the judicial case also refuses to share the files with Jean-Pierre Bloch because the grieving father has not instructed a lawyer to make the approach on his behalf, bureaucracy taking precedent over compassion. The presiding judge goes on to tell Monsieur Bloch, the death of your daughter is not your business, it's the state's business. No wonder then that Jean-Pierre Bloch is distrustful of the authorities. A year later, a 14-year-old enters a lift in her building in the 14th arrondissement, only to be confronted with a man claiming to be a police officer. He forces her to take him upstairs to her home, where he ties her up at gunpoint before assaulting her. Unlike Cecile, she is left alive. When police show her the sketch they made based on descriptions of the man spotted in Cecile Block's elevator, she nods. This is the man who has just terrorized her in her own home. Further investigations into more cold cases now suggest that Le Grelet has assaulted as many as eight others, a mixture of women and girls. Whoever he is, he is showing no signs of stopping. There are common themes in the statements of the victims, recurring descriptions of a pockmarked face and of a man claiming to be a police officer to win their trust. Despite the number of people he has assaulted, though, he has only killed one, Cecile. All the others have lived to tell their tale. Then, just as quickly as Le Grelet burst onto the scene, he disappears. In January 1989, the magistrate closes down the judicial investigation. The police, however, keep their file open, albeit unsolved. They start to wonder what has happened to Le Grelet. What has made him stop? Could he be in jail or even dead? Tragically, Suzanne Block, Cecile's mother, will not live to see her daughter's killer caught. She dies in a car crash later that year. The Block family feel cursed and are left to rebuild their lives once again. They become locked in a cycle of sporadic police interest in the case, always drawing a blank. Indeed, a total of eight judges across the years that follow will review the case only to mothball it again for lack of new evidence. One of these will do so after only 11 days. Surely, Block argues, his little girl's life is worth more than that? Cecile's brother Luke becomes a geneticist, perhaps inspired by what happened to his sister. He teaches at the University of Sorbonne. It will be another five years before Le Grelet hits the headlines again, but this next case will eventually lead to the first real glimmer of hope. It's the summer of 1994. An 11-year-old girl identified only by her first name, Ingrid, is attacked in Saclay, southwest of Paris. She identifies Le Grelet from his police sketch. He also showed her what looked like a police identification card, known locally as a tricolor due to the French flag emblazoned on it. Ingrid adds an extra detail that is new to the police. The man drove a white Volvo. It's a popular car, though, so investigators are trawling through hundreds of owners when they're handed what looks like a promising lead. A man is arrested in October 1994 while trying to kidnap two girls in Constagondoir to the west of the city. He is driving a white Volvo, and like Le Grelet, 
claims to be a police officer. Authorities are cautiously optimistic that they finally have their man, but that is soon thrown into doubt. They show a photo of their suspect to Ingrid, the girl who was assaulted only months earlier, but she fails to recognize him. Crucially though, attitudes towards DNA profiling have changed, and the latest magistrate to review Le Grelet's case orders a DNA profile to be created. This ultimately lets the new suspect off the hook for Le Grelet's crimes, although he's still convicted of the attempted kidnapping. It leaves the police with Le Grelet's genetic fingerprint though, a step closer to his true identity. But in an inexplicable move, they do not compare it to the back catalog of samples in unsolved cases. It's not until 2001, when the fifth different magistrate is appointed to review the Cecile Block case, that this is even considered. With the search comes a new revelation. A previously unlinked case from 1987 will propel Le Grelet back into the headlines and a new level of notoriety. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's April 29th, 1987, and police wind their way through tight back streets barely wide enough to fit a single car. They pull up outside Le Pont Vergoul, a cafe and theater just over the river from Notre Dame Cathedral. The theater is known for its stand-up comedy, but there's nothing humorous about their visit today. Colleagues at Air France have reported Gilles Politi, a ground mechanic, missing. When there's no answer at the door, Police break in, finding Gilles at home, but beyond their help. It's a crime scene that some officers will describe as the most disturbing of their careers. Gilles Politi has not died well. They find him face down on his bed, naked, hands and feet tied behind his back. Although he has died from strangulation, it's evident that he has been tortured first. Cigarette burns and cuts across his body are a roadmap of the pain he has been subjected to. They move through the apartment. For all they know, the killer could still be here. The other rooms are all empty, until, that is, they enter the spare bedroom. There they find 21-year-old Imgard Muller, Politi's au pair. She has suffered the same type of torture and has been left tied to the posts of a bunk bed, arms spread as if crucified. Whoever killed her has left a length of string around her neck, cranked tight from behind with a stick, strangulation putting an end to her ordeal. A forensic examination is able to determine that she has slept with someone, although not Politi, hours before police broke down the door. Someone with blood type A. Officers find her diary and in it is a list of names, previous and current partners, Experience tell them that crimes like this are more likely to be carried out by someone known to the victim, and they begin their investigation in earnest. One by one, though, the names are crossed off as alibis check out. Almost everyone, that is. Elijah Loringe turns out to be a fake name, with an address that does not exist. Could this mystery man be a jilted lover? 
one who snapped and killed both Imgard and her employer in a fit of rage? Unable to trace the man behind the false name in Imgard's diary and in the absence of any witnesses, the case falls off the radar. That is until two decades later, when the fifth different magistrate overseeing the Cecile Block case decides to do what his predecessors chose not to. Comparing Le Grelais' DNA profile against a number of historic cases, he is confirmed as the killer of Gilles Politi and Imgard Mueller. This is a departure for Le Grelais from his usual victim profile. For starters, it's the first time he has chosen a male victim. It's also the only time he has attacked multiple people, suggesting it could be a spur-of-the-moment thing. A crime of passion, perhaps. Could he be the man masquerading in Imgard's life as Elijah Loringe? If he is the kind of man likely to snap, attacking people without prior warning or planning, he could be prone to mistakes. The downside is that authorities will need him to strike again to make those mistakes. They have his face as described by a dozen witnesses and survivors, his DNA profile, his penchant for posing as a policeman, but still it's not enough. They need more. They need a miracle. Jean-Pierre Bloch has had his belief in the system ground away over the years and seen his prayers go unanswered. He isn't waiting for a miracle. In 2001, he has a chance meeting with Corinne Hutzebaut, a recognized expert in the growing field of criminal profiling. Profiling looks to identify a person's mental, emotional, and personality characteristics based on what has been done or left at the crime scene. Hutzebaut has studied all over the world, including with the FBI. She spent time at their behavioral analysis unit in their Quantico headquarters. She takes up the mantle on behalf of Jean-Pierre, raking through the ashes of the case. She tells police that Le Grelais is someone who is isolated, but generally perceived as kind. A literate person who reads widely, probably one fascinated by detective films. She goes on to say that he feels guilt and possibly has issues with his own sexuality. He is likely close to his mother and steals from his victims as a way of saying he takes what he wants. The comments about his mother become especially telling when a woman who lives in the same building as the blocks allegedly says to Hutzebot that she knows who killed Cecile. The profiler shares this with police, but it's not followed up and the woman disappears soon after. Could this have been Le Grelais' own mother? The lack of action by police just reaffirms Jean-Pierre's distrust of how they have handled his daughter's murder. Ultimately, Corinne Hutzebaus' intervention produces nothing more than a documentary and a book, neither of which comes any closer to bringing Le Grelais to justice. It begins to feel like it's going to take an unexpected breakthrough, or for him to strike again, for this to finally be over. As the years drag on, there is no silver bullet, as one magistrate after another continues the cycle of reviewing and closing the Cecile Block case. The techniques available to investigators continue to evolve, and with each stride forward comes renewed hope that this might be the key that unlocks the mystery of Le Grelais. New DNA-based techniques are developed following a murder in January 2002 allowing officers to check if there is a family link between a suspect and somebody already on the DNA database, a technique known as a familial match. 
Hopes are soon dashed, as no member of Legrelais's family has previously been registered as a suspect in any case. New criminal behavioral analysis software is able to attach yet more historical cases to Legrelais. 19-year-old Corinne Leroy was murdered back in 1994, in a fashion that mirrors the type of strangulation used by Legrelais. A young real estate agent murdered in 1991 is also now thought to have met her end at his hands, despite genetic samples going missing before tests could be completed. If true, it shows that Legrelais was active between 1987 and 1994. With cases continuing to stack up, Legrelais is a phantom. Events take yet another tragic twist when Jean-Pierre Bloch dies in September 2011, leaving Cecile's half-brother Luke as the only surviving member of her family to stand watch in the hope that her killer will see justice. After over three decades of disappointment, he admits he does not hold out much hope. Eight magistrates have reviewed the case. Eight have failed to hold anyone to account for the growing list of crimes. Luke Richard doesn't know it yet, but for him and for Cecile, the ninth time will be the charm. Leg Relay may as well be called the ghost. Over 30 years, and even with all the advances in forensic and investigative techniques, authorities are still no closer to catching him. All that is about to change. In 2021, a new examining magistrate, Nathalie Turquet, comes on board. She casts the net wider than anyone has previously. It's long been alleged that Le Grelet could be a member of law enforcement. Surviving victims detail how he had used this approach to gain their trust. What if it wasn't just a ruse? What if he was exactly what he claimed to be? Natalie Turquet takes a leap of faith. She issues an order for a list of all known gendarmes who were stationed in that region of Paris at the time of Cécile Bloch's death. It's no small task, and the final number is around 750. She orders letters to be sent to each and every one of them, instructing them to report in to give a DNA sample. It feels like a Hail Mary, but it will prove to be the nail in Le Grelet's coffin. It's September 24th, 2021, and Francois Verove is going about his usual morning routine, a light breakfast and coffee to set him up for the day. There's a scrape and clatter from the hallway, followed by retreating footsteps as today's post drops into the metal cage behind the door. Verove blows on his coffee, sipping as he shuffles down the hall. A handful of envelopes wait for him, and he waits till he's made the return journey to the kitchen table to sift through them. The first two are bills, but the third makes him pause. He recognizes the seal stamped on the front. He gently places his coffee on the table, blows out a breath, and slits the envelope open with one finger. It's a single sheet of paper signed by a magistrate. The words he reads are like concrete pouring onto his legs, weighing him down, anchoring him to the past, to a dimly lit basement 35 years ago. The sheet slips through his fingers, fluttering to the floor. They found him. It's over. We've come full circle. 
back to the officers standing in the rented property, Barov's body slumped in a chair, sheet of paper on a table beside him. Barov has tried to explain his actions from beyond the grave. He confesses to being the pockmarked killer, saying that he had, in his words, experienced previous impulses, but that he had overcome them. An explanation, but no apology. News outlets across the world carry the story. Crimes committed by a man who at the time was a police officer, somebody people would instinctively trust. Samples taken from Verov's body are a match to numerous crimes, amongst them the murder of Cecile Block. There is no doubt now. He and Le Grelais are one and the same. One of the longest manhunts in French history is over. The case of the pockmarked killer is one fraught with frustration. How can it have taken so long with the weight of evidence and witness testimony? Could more proactive police action have prevented at least some of Verov's crimes? Perhaps if authorities had embraced some of the advances in forensics, one or both of Cecile's parents could have seen their daughter's killer brought to justice. As it is, Verov escaped punishment, slipping away on his own terms. In a final twist that sticks in the throat of many, he remains legally innocent of any crime, despite his confession. There is no appetite for a posthumous prosecution. One last job remains for investigators. Pinned to a wall where it has stared at them for over 30 years, the sketch of Le Grelet is finally taken down and boxed up with the rest of the evidence. We may not even know the full extent of his crimes. Investigators continue to look for links to any similar unsolved cold cases. For Cecile, though, at least, we have those answers. Hopefully now, at last, she can rest in peace. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We enter the mind of one of Australia's most notorious serial killers, Ivan Milad, who taunts investigators hoping that he will give a deathbed confession as he lays dying from cancer. Will Milad finally own up to his horrific crimes? Or will he take his secrets to the grave? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Rob Scrag, supervising editor Ben Bishop, sound design by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley, 